guess I should have prayed a little longer. You wouldn't have seen Calvin sneaking off there. You know, um, some of you are seeing the set here, and so that's good, and the set kind of inspires me. I'm, I've never really wanted to be a drama person, but I, I was inspired, especially when I saw this door. It's a very realistic door, and uh, it inspired me to want to sing, and I wanted to sing this this song, it it's, uh, just seems to fit this set so well. It's, it goes, uh, it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful t- to be neighbors, won't you be mine? Yeah, it's uh, kind of channel the inner Mr. Rogers. But I also thought about today and, and the, the message that we have today and wanted to start a little lighter because the message starts in a pretty heavy place. We always talk about Merry Christmas and Happy Christmas, as they would say when we lived in Scotland. But we also know that not everybody's happy and not everybody's merry. And that, in fact, a lot of times people are um, extra sad at this time as they think about different things, whether it's... Um, the fact that they may be alone or the fact that maybe um, this this time is not all that that it is for other people with families gathering and maybe they lost loved ones at this time. And it's not just a seasonal thing, this this idea. I'm gonna show you some numbers that we have up on the on the screen. Maybe, uh, maybe not. But these numbers will tell you something, that worldwide, these are just what's diagnosed as people who have some form of depression, 300 million. In the United States, 16.2 million. And that means at some, some point in their lives, 15% of Americans, more than one in 10, And the diagnoses are rising. Back in the 1950s, it was about 13.1. And then, you know, the diagnoses went down. But ever since about the year 1999, 2000, they've been climbing precipitously. And it's something that, you know, people all take stabs at to try to explain why is it increasing? Why is the rate increasing? Why are the numbers increasing? And by the way, it goes across the board of every age group, every age group. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old, every age group, it's on the, it's on the increase. In fact, among teenagers, suicide is the, is the second leading cause of death. Think about that. Teenagers into their college years. And for all of Americans, it's the 10th leading cause of death. Do we understand what depression is? Depression isn't simply I'm sad. It it does involve sadness. But depression, when it's diagnosed as depression, is is something that's even more than that. It's something that, that, that grips us and debilitates us. And it really prevents us from 
from functioning in a, in, a, in a healthy way. We can still do normal things. In fact, there may be people in this room right now who you would never suspect uh, experienced depression or suffered even now from depression because a lot of people learn to cope with it and they keep going, they keep moving. Other people are, are medicated and so you wouldn't know because they're medicated. But it's on the rise. And I could sit here and tell you why I think it's on the rise. I could sit here and, and explain to you, um, you know, some of the factors that have happened in our society over the past 50, 60 years that I think are contributing to it. I could, I could make my guesses and put them alongside the theologians and philosophers and sociologists. And I think I would be at least partly right. But I don't really think that matters. What I'd rather do today is talk about how do we overcome this? How do we overcome when something that evokes a feeling that's debilitating, that's negative, even a feeling that might have even biological causes and they're not just environmental causes. How can we deal with this? And of course, the answer is we're going to find in the Bible because here's what I believe. I believe that we're in a world that doesn't have more pain than before. I don't think it's a competition like, oh, we have more pain today than they did before. We have more things to be sad about or be depressed about than they did before. I don't think that's true. I think that's pain and suffering has been part of the human experience since there have been human. But I do think that we have less hope today. I do think that we are a society that at some level, either at the, at the very conscious level or somewhere deeper in our subconscious, we have less hope, less hope in just about every area of our lives. Some of us may be even looking at, at not just the future generations, we look at the future generations of our own family. We look at our children and our grandchildren and maybe even our great-grandchildren and we have less hope for them. And sometimes it's less hope for the world that they're going to live in. And sometimes it's less hope for what they will become. That we're not thinking that they're going to be these awesome, God-glorifying, God-following believers, helping to carry on the mission that was passed on to us from generations. don't have as much hope. And that's among Christians. That's not talking about a world and a society that, that largely is, is accepting this view that, that we weren't created by God. That we just happened. And because we just happened, we can't really point to anything that says, this is truth or this is purpose. And we're left to try to sort through like, well, I guess I can make up my own purpose or maybe I can adopt one of yours. But if I choose not to do that, 
and I'm left without purpose, and life seems to be going not the way that I wanted it to go, I'm right there on the doorstep of depression. Same amount of pain, just a lot less hope. And so we come, we come to this story today and of this, this man, this honorable man, who like Mary, thought he had his life all together. And then all of a sudden, he gets this news. Do we have the video ready of the man on the street? We just keep going away and not know what to do, and um, and just say, wow, why (laughs) me? So here's Joseph, this man, who, like Mary, thought they had life sorted out, thought they, they knew what the next few years were, were going to be. And all of a sudden, his betrothed, in many ways his wife, has to tell him that she's pregnant. And that's that he's not the father. So we find if anyone in history is facing some pain, well, we find this in Joseph. Let's look at the text, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So here's this couple, and we talk about Mary, and Mary is remembered in the church and in certain parts of the church revered, but we don't talk about Joseph that much. And, you know, we look here, and in the little bit that the story tells us about Joseph, it tells us that Joseph is, is he's, a, he's a real man. He's a real guy. And he's experiencing everything that we might experience. 
if we receive the same news. And we're not told whether Mary said, you're not the Father, but, but the Father is actually God, the Holy Spirit, and it's a miracle. Because frankly, if she had told him that, guess what? He's not going to believe her. He, even if he has this deep love for her, at best he's going to think she's crazy. And so here he's confronted with, with this situation and, and the text tells us the first thing that he decides to do is his course of action after he probably got over the, the emotion His course of action is, okay, I'll just divorce her quietly. That tells us a lot. And it tells us that that Joseph and Mary, they didn't, you know, this arranged marriage wasn't like out of the blue. They didn't know each other. They they had known that they were going to be married. And they, they, they knew each other. And they had taken time to, you know, to, to talk and have conversations about about what their life would be like together. And it, and it seemed like, just like we said last week, like, like Mary, really in, in her time and what she could hope for in her life as a, as a peasant in, in, this, in Palestine, that in so many ways she had hit the jackpot with Joseph. He was a good man. He loved her. He'd provide for her. It was really what she, would, she could hope for. She could dream of. And I think Joseph felt the same way. I think Joseph was like, man, of all the people I could have ended up with, Mary's awesome. She's great. This is good. This is really going to be... I, I, I cannot imagine life in any other way. And that's hard for us to wrap our heads around because, you know, we think that, that everything should happen in a certain order, that, you know, people should, should, should see each other from across the room and then be attracted to one another and then, and then, you know, go and talk and date and then after they date for a while, get to know one another better and then finally, you know, get married. And that's how you fall in love. Well, I'm pretty sure from the little we see in this text that Mary and Joseph, they, they love each other. How that came to be, we don't get the details. We just see that he, he resolves to divorce her quietly. He was unwilling to put her to shame because he could have. He had different options that he could have pursued. He could have made a big deal out of it. But he didn't. He wasn't just going to divorce her. He was going to divorce her quietly. And it takes this dream to change his mind. It takes this dream to change the direction of his life. And Joseph's response is is this faithfulness. So when we look at this, this, this text, the first thing we see is that it is faithfulness 
It is faithfulness that helps Joseph overcome these emotions. Sometimes emotions get, get kind of a bad name, like people, people want to celebrate the person who stays cool and calm and collected. But emotions are not, are not necessarily bad. In fact, we need them. The problem with emotions is that when we, when we take action in the midst of emotions, a lot of times those actions are impulsive and they're not thought out well. If you've ever argued with someone or tried to reason with someone who's really upset, they will say crazy things. Things that they would never say when they're not upset. But that's because the emotions are churning. And I think we, we, we need the emotions because I think the emotions reveal something to us, especially when, when someone is, is, is so sad or so hurt that they're being irrational. Because while that doesn't help us reach a conclusion, it does tell us how much it hurt or how much it affected them. So it's not about emotions are bad and we should suppress our emotions. No. It's perfectly okay for Joseph to be, to be angry, to feel betrayed, to worry about his own future now, to worry about his own reputation. I'm sure he probably worked out all these things in his head, but he was, he was so upset, so emotional. And, and it requires God's intervention. And if we think about it, if we think about it, you know, it helps us understand something about first century people. The first century people weren't just so superstitious and believed in magic and all of these other things and, you know, believed in all these miracles. Because if that were the case, Joseph could have gone, all right, it's a miracle. Yeah, they happen every day. Sure. Yeah, God miraculously made you pregnant. I'm good with that. It tells you that 2,000 years ago, people still think today that how are babies made? They're not made by magic. They're not made miraculously and supernaturally. So we, we, we see that he really has to consider like that's not possible. That is not possible. The miraculous, the supernatural is not possible. And as long as it's not possible, he only has two other options. Mary is either lying or she's crazy. One of those two things. But see, he has another emotion. Another emotion that eventually helps him to take what he thinks is the right action. And that other emotion is he seems to really care about Mary. He seems to love her. And even though he's angry, and that anger causes pain, what the pain does is it reveals that he actually cares. Because if he only cared about himself and his own reputation and his own life, who cares about Mary? Just go find another woman. 
Just go find someone else who will be faithful and true. I'm sure someone probably said the first century Jewish equivalent, Joseph, there's more fish in the sea. Just go find another one. But the fact that he's hurt, the fact that he feels pain tells you that he cared about her. Tells you that, that he, was, he trusted her. And then that had been betrayed. So when those mix of emotions finally come down to a logical decision, his logical decision is, okay, I can't stay with her, but I don't want to hurt her. And it takes this vision. This vision that then Joseph responds to in faithfulness that helps Joseph overcome his pain. He's got this initial emotional reaction and then he's hurt because he, he loves her and he feels betrayed, but he's going to take this logical decision, but he still hurts. But it is faithfulness that says, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to listen to what this angel says. I'm going to do exactly what this angel says and take Mary to be my wife. And then we see the message that appears in this dream with the first words and it's interesting because oftentimes when the angels would show up, their first words are, fear not, fear not, fear not. With Joseph, it's this fear not. But it's not just general fear not. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You see, he had this initial emotional response like we all would have. He's worked through to this kind of, kind of logical decision that he's going to take. But underlying it all, even though on the surface he has this idea of, of, of love and compassion and not wanting to, you know, to hurt Mary, but underlying it all is this fear. It's a fear. Because he realizes, you know, he realizes that he is saying that if he takes Mary to be his wife, which there's a part of him that probably still wants to, even though she's hurt him, he realizes that he has to live with this for the rest of his life. That this is not going to go away. I'm sure Joseph and Mary probably had that, that really, that tense moment when when she told him. And perhaps, the text doesn't tell us, but perhaps Joseph went back to her and said, come on, Mary, look, I will forgive you. Just be honest with me and tell me who the real father is. As a matter of fact, he might have even negotiated more and said, you don't even have to tell me who the real father is. Just 
stop this crazy story about it being a miracle and supernatural. Just tell me, okay, you had a moment of weakness and indiscretion, and it's okay because I will forgive you and then we can move on. But if they had those conversations, if they had those discussions, every time they're having them, Mary is saying the same thing. I cannot tell you a lie. I am not lying to you. It was a miracle. This child, this child is from God. He's, a, he's afraid. And what is he afraid of? I think he's afraid of everything. I think he's afraid of what happens if I marry a crazy person? What happens if I marry somebody who's lying to me? But there's another thing he could be afraid of. What happens if I marry her and she's telling the truth? What if this Messiah that we've been waiting for, I'm supposed to be his earthly father. I'm supposed to be the one who has to take care of him. I'm the one who has to protect him. I'm the one who has to make sure he stays on this path. He doesn't realize who Jesus will be. He doesn't realize that he's this perfect, holy son of God incarnate. He's thinking like all of us would think. How can I do this? It doesn't matter whether he thinks she's crazy or whether she thinks she's a liar or whether she th he thinks she's telling the truth. In fact, if he, if he was really going to be afraid, he'd be most afraid that she is telling the truth. And now he has one of the most important jobs in history. Fear. Fear not. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Could he do it? Would he do it? You see, Joseph was like a lot of people in Israel at that time. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah to be born. They wanted a Messiah to, to rise up and lead the people against the, 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 the Romans and regain their freedom. He wanted it. But did he want the Messiah to be his own son? Let me give you kind of a more modern example. When we think about about God's plan for this world, when we think about, about the kingdom spreading and we think about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, many of us pray for it. As we just talked about with the Lottie Moon offering, many of us give money towards it and many of us have that great hope that the gospel will be proclaimed to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. But what if it's your child? What if it's your child who says, Mom and Dad, 
I believe that God is calling me to go reach this, 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 this tribe that has never been reached with the gospel before. I think that's what God wants. Or what if, if, if your child says, you know, I think God is calling me to go, to go be a missionary in the Middle East. A lot of times we're like, yes, God, reach the world with other people's children, with other people's sisters and brothers and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Not with mine. Let mine just kind of, you know, live a good life, a happy life. But let other people's kids, let them Go save the world. You know why I know Joseph thinks these things? Because I think these things too. I think sometimes as Christian parents, we, we run this, this, this double fear. We have this fear that our children will completely abandon the faith. But we have this other fear that we don't talk about. And it's that fear that our children will embrace the faith in such a radical way that they will go to the most dangerous places in the world to, to, to reach people for the gospel. And we're terrified of it. That's how I know. We want God to do all these things. But we want him to do them through other people and other people's children. One of the pastors at the church that we used to go to said, said the greatest, the greatest like regret in his life was that God did not call him to the mission field. And he was a pretty successful pastor. But he said, he said so many days he wished God had called him. And I wonder if that's true about us. That maybe we're disappointed that God didn't call us to go to the most dangerous places. To go to the places that would stretch our faith to the very edge. As long as it's other people's children, we're good. As long as it's other people, we're good, God. Do your will. Fear not. Fear not. The message that the angel gave to Joseph in the dream is the same message. The same message that we have today. Fear not. Fear not. God has a plan. Fear not. His plan is is greater than any plan that you have. Fear not. He has a role for you. Fear not.
do what God has directed you to do. And I love this. Same thing we see from Mary, we see from Joseph. We see that, not just that feeling of faithfulness, but we see that, that act of faithfulness. That he's, he's got all these emotions that are swimming around. He's, he's hurt. He's afraid. But when God speaks to him through the angel, he is faithful. And it tells us in verse 24, when, G, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife. Took his wife. Says he knew her not. For those of you who aren't into understanding what Bible code means, it means he didn't have sex with her. But knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Joseph does exactly what he's told. Did all these emotions just go away? I don't think so. I think they're still there. I think he's still, you know, going through them like any of us would go through them. Is he still afraid? Sure, he's afraid. He's afraid and he doesn't even know, he doesn't even know really what lies ahead. But it's okay. He brings the gift of faithfulness just like Mary did. And then God does something amazing. He meets Joseph's faithfulness. You see, we focus so much on our faithfulness because for us, our faithfulness seems like we're giving so much. And in a sense, we are. But in the bigger scheme of things, our faithfulness is so small compared to God's faithfulness. You see, God wants us to be faithful. But then what he does is he meets us in our faithfulness. His faithfulness meets us in our faithfulness. And when that happens, nothing can stop us from doing God's will. Nothing. When our faithfulness meets God's faithfulness, nothing can stop us from doing his will. Think about this. Joseph is, if he's not in this story, we don't know Joseph, we don't know Mary. They're just like so many other people who are growing up in that time in the first century and living life together and having a family and, and making a living and then dying. That's what's happening to Mary and Joseph. They're not anything special. They're not like superhero parents. They're not, you know, spies. No. They're just ordinary people who are faithful. And they're going up against some of the most powerful people in their time. The king, King Herod, he wants Jesus dead. And who did God choose to protect Jesus? Did he choose an army? Did he choose like 
you know, I don't know if you picture Joseph, but I'm pretty sure he didn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or The Rock. I don't think he looked that way. I don't think, you know, Mary possessed these, you know, superpowers and she had all these crazy ninja skills. I don't think so. He doesn't, he doesn't protect Jesus against this, this king in the way the world would. He protects him with parents who are faithful. And parents who are faithful can defy the most powerful empire, can, can, can protect God's children and help them accomplish God's will because there's parents who are faithful. When our faithfulness meets God's faithfulness, nothing can stop us. Not King Herod, not his soldiers, not even if the emperor came against Jesus. Mary and Joseph, listening to God, do the job. That's what God wants. He wants us to meet him. He wants to take what seems to us a huge step But in the bigger scheme of things, it's just a tiny step. But it requires so much from us that it seems so big. But what he wants to tell you is, but I'm going to do so much more. I'm going to take that that faithfulness. I'm going to take that little gift you have. And I'm going to do something so much beyond what you could do on your own. You see, when we talk about the cost of discipleship, when we get into that and we say, like, um, you, know, you know, it costs us everything. We surrender all. We're living sacrifices. People focus on what it costs them. And what they don't realize is that what happens is God takes that. And he, he does so much more than what we could do on our own. Our families are so much more than what they would be on our own. Our children are so much more than what they would be on their own. It's one small step. A step of faithfulness. Faithfulness helps us get our eyes off of just our own situation and what we're giving and it helps us turn our eyes towards God's project, God's kingdom, God's objectives, God's purpose. It constantly reminds us of that. Faithfulness. You know, we've been talking the last three months about what a healthy church is. And, and at the heart of a healthy church is, is, is discipleship. Being discipled and discipling others. Helping us all to, to acquire that knowledge of God that helps us become more like Christ and to, be, and to be one body in Christ, advancing his kingdom. That that's what a healthy church is. That's what we're called to be. And so the question is, you know, what is holding us back? Are, are we like Joseph? Are we held back by our emotions? Are we being held back by pain? Are we being held back by fear? 
Let me make something clear, because I think the church gets this wrong. I think the church believes that victory over depression means depression goes away. Sometimes that's true, but it's not always true. Sometimes the depression is going to remain. Joseph didn't just lose all these feelings. They're still there. Sometimes the depression is going to remain. The victory is that God will still use you. That God hasn't given up on you. That much as Paul prayed that the thorn in the flesh would be taken away and it never was taken away, God still used Paul greatly. It's not the removal of all pain and all suffering and all disease. It is knowing that I can walk through these things and I can have hope if I remain faithful that God is still using me no matter how I might feel. The church has done a disservice to people by saying, you know, if you're depressed, you don't have enough faith. No, some of the most faithful people I know are people who are depressed. People who overcome that overwhelming sense of of sadness and lethargy that they can't explain, and they're still faithful. They still hold on to their God. And I hate when the church tells them, you are not a good enough Christian. And let me tell you, if any of you are that way, if any of you are experiencing this, understand, God wants the same thing he wanted from Joseph. Just be faithful. And if any of you are remotely thinking about telling someone who's going through depression that they're depressed because they're not faithful to God, stop it. Let's stop ruining lives and let's start helping lives. Start giving them hope. It comes back to faithfulness. We're called to be a healthy church. I told you last week, you know, one of the, that, that verse we read last week is, is it's, it's always been why I stay wherever I am, whether I'm at a church or at a school or in a ministry, it's why I stay in a situation. And it's those great words that Paul wrote when he said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I'm going to throw my wife a curveball here. I think she'll like it because she doesn't have to play. But as we close today, I want to teach you this song. It's based on this scripture. And the reason I want to teach you it is because some of you know it. It's, it's from that time which I loved in church in the 80s and 90s when we sung scripture more. I love that. And I think when we sing it, we remember it. And I think if we remember it, I don't want you remembering me singing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I want you to remember this song. I want this song to stick in your head. And some, like I said, some of you know it. And we're just going to do it a cappella, and it's going to be our close for today. Because it's one of the reasons I want you to, to feel about why you continue to be faithful. 
But it's also why you don't give up on your brothers and sisters. Don't give up on Wailai Baptist Church. Don't give up on the church in Hawaii. Don't give up on the church in America. Don't give up on Christians all over the world. And it's because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So say these words with me. I'll say them, you repeat them. He who began a good work in you. So you say that, and then we'll say it, when we sing it, we sing it twice. We'll be faithful to complete it. Then we'll say that again. We'll be faithful to complete it. And then the last bit is, he who started a work will be faithful to complete it in you. So let's just, I'll just sing one line and you sing it with me. I'm pretty sure I'm going to pick a key that's not a real human key, somewhere in between something, but we'll, we'll do our best. He who began a good work in you. Sing that. He who began a good work in you. Second line is the same, but it goes up at the end. He who began a good work in you. Let's try that. He who began a good work in you. Then it's, oh, it's actually a note on the piano. Amazing. (laughs) We'll be faithful to complete it. We'll be faithful to complete it. Second is exactly the same. We'll be faithful to complete it. And then the last part, he who started a work will be faithful to complete it in you. See if you can do that. He who started a work will be faithful to complete it in you. Let's put it all together. Ready? He who began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you. Will be faithful to complete it. Will be faithful to complete it. He who started a work will be faithful to complete it in you. 